if it looks like a great easy place for you to hunt you're probably not going to see old deer there because other people have thought it was a great place to hunt and they've probably killed the old deer you're looking for things that are advantageous for the deer not for you so if, if you go into it with the mindset of oh man this place has a great vantage point and it has it has all these things that i can see from google earth that other people would easily identify also you're you're probably starting at a disadvantage if you go into it saying okay what looks like a great place for a deer to be hard to kill that has everything he could want to live in that's probably where you're going to have a higher success rate on mature deer Welcome to the Hunt Backcountry podcast and the continuation of our podcast series on how to hunt mule deer. Our guest today is our good buddy, Dioni. He is a fantastic mule deer hunter in Idaho who's been successful, and we speak with Dioni about locating mule deer. So last week in the episode, we spoke with Jason Wright about scouting for mule deer. This episode on locating, there's obviously a lot of crossover there, but the idea is to move on from preseason scouting and to get into during a hunt, how are you then locating mule deer? This includes things like glassing setups, glassing strategies, where mule deer seek cover. We speak with Dione not only just about early season high country mule deer, but also the transition into rifle season as well. So this is a very helpful episode, kind of the next step, if you will, when you go from preseason to then locating deer during the field during your hunt. As we've said, we'll continue. We'll talk next week about stalking. So if you're in a spot and stalk situation, you've located a mule deer, which we discussed today. We're going to break down stalking techniques next week. Thank you guys so much for continuing to tune in. If you can leave us a review, that would help us tremendously. And if you have any questions or feedback for us directly, just send us an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. All right, let's dive in and talk about how to locate mule deer. Dioni, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. Thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, Steve, I would, uh, you know, we like to let guests introduce themselves, but you know, Dioni, I want you to kick things off. What what comes to mind when uh, you think of getting Dioni on the podcast here? Uh, man, yeah, I've known Dioni for quite a few years now, um, and just, he's like the, um, yeah, just the perfect uh, get after it, DIY, solo, you know, just public land guy, a guy who goes out and gets it done very, very consistently. Uh, and I think that's, um, over the years, you know, paying attention to the, to the, the hunters that you want to learn from are the guys who just go out and kill animals every single year, year in, year out, right? They didn't just randomly kill a, bu- a big buck one year and then, then they don't kill another deer for three or four years. Uh, he finds a way to just get it done. So always excited to talk to and learn from somebody that's doing that because, Certainly, there's um, something to their to their success, right? Some tip or trick that uh, you can kind of glean from from them, and and hopefully take that out into the field and become a better hunter yourself. Yeah, and I know plenty of guys too who would say the same, and you know that you've helped Dioni. Um, 
I, I hear your name come up in other conversations with other guys that are kind of in mutual circles of you helping guys, and that's super cool to hear. Did you grow up as a hunter, and maybe when did you kind of like go next level in terms of you know really getting after mule deer consistently? Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up hunting. Uh, growing up in central Idaho, it was a pretty common thing, I guess. Um, but it was like most people's experience where my dad, you know, we'd have kind of like the family hunting area and we'd go and we'd kind of do the same things every year and sometimes happen into a deer. Um, there wasn't much rhyme or reason to it. Uh, it wasn't very, you know, thought out. Um, but you know, it was fun and I, I learned a lot, uh, but not, not so much like the higher level stuff. But when I got into my, my early twenties, I guess, um, you know, I, I'd, become more involved with hunting. I started bow hunting, you know, when I got into college and, uh, I guess I hit a point where I just felt like I had way too many hobbies and I did way too many things and I wanted to actually be good at something. And, and I've always wanted to kill a big four point mule deer is like a lifelong goal of mine. I'd never even killed a four point up to that point. And, uh, I just, I, I remember it was, it was March, uh, 2011 i just told myself i need to i need to do one thing like i do too many things and i don't do any of them well i need to do one thing and figure it out and get good at it and i got david uh, long's public land muley's book and read it front to back like in a couple days i can just remember thinking like man i need it to be summer so i can start scouting um and i went and scouted a whole bunch that summer and i talked to anybody who who talked to me and learned everything i could from from people who i'd, I'd revered as, as good local hunters uh, you know, there wasn't quite as many resources online at that point in time and um, just really, really dove into it. And uh, a big part of it was luck. A huge, huge part of it was luck. But um, a lot of will and determination went into it. And that year I ended up killing what is still my biggest buck, uh, 195 inch deer. So um, after that, I it was it was pretty cemented that this is something I wanted to do. But uh, I had so many people tell me that I'd never kill a bigger buck that that it <laughs> it pushed me even harder. So that was, that was my motivation from that day on is to prove all those people wrong. And I, I haven't yet, but I like to think it's, uh, I like to think it's coming. So what are just like from those early days, be it mistakes made lessons learned is like some of the few key takeaways of things that really began to make a difference or like the light bulb went off, the dots connected. Uh, like you said, when you started to take it serious, what are just, if you think back at that time, what are some of those few key things that come to mind? Man, there's there's more mistakes than, than stories that went right from from that year. But the one takeaway I look at that I can attribute most of my success to is persistence. Um, if if you work at it long enough, you figure out a way to do it right. So that year, I did a lot of things wrong. I missed a lot of deer. Um, I screwed up on that deer be- the day before I killed him. But I was so persistent that even though things weren't going my way, most of the times I'd go out. Um, you know, I just kept at it until it, until it turned up good for me. So persistence was the biggest thing. Um, you know, it, it's hard to remember that far back, all the specific things I was doing. Um, yeah, yeah I, I would say that was, was my key takeaway. Yeah, that's good, man. When, uh, you blew it, you said the day before you ended up actually, uh, getting on that buck. Was he tough to relocate or did he stay in a pretty similar area and you got back on him? You know, I, I ended up chilling him probably three quarters of a mile away from where I'd shot at him the day before. Um, you know, I just like, like so many people who haven't killed very many big bucks, I was really excited and I got buck fever and, 
and made a made a bad shot the day before, clean miss, and uh, the next day it, it was. So much of this could be chalked up as luck, but in a lot of ways, you know, I, I'm sure many hunters have noticed where they had this weird feeling. Um, and a lot of times it goes, you know, a lot of people ignore it, but I've, I've learned really well to, to listen to odd intuition feelings where I, that day I decided to hike into where I was glassing from differently. And I, I ran into that deer on my hike into the glassing spot. So, uh, in, in a lot of ways it was luck seeing that specific deer in that spot but um you know i had a weird feeling and, and i'd been into that spot probably seven or eight times that year and, and i just went a different way from where i was camped and, and ran into him on the way there so um no real lesson learned other than than kind of just pay attention to your in- intuition yeah that's a like an aside from where we were going but i'm so curious about that because it's something that we've hit on as much as you talk about the way things should be or strategies or tactics like paying attention to that intuition, the hunter's instinct, whatever you want to call it is so important can be easy to overlook, especially when we're talking about strategies and how to's, but do you have other examples of like hunts or other times that that's come into play where you really just followed your intuition and your instinct, maybe more so than quote unquote, what you should do. And it's paid off for you. Most of them. (laughs) (laughs) just to this point I've, I've got i've killed four deer over 183 of them i i 100 percent can say that i had an odd feeling and i did something different than i normally would have that that led to me killing those deer um now obviously as, as i'm getting better at this and as i'm learning it more um more of this is situationally i've put myself in a place where that can occur and i just happened to do something slightly differently that allowed me to to kill that deer but um you know I, and i i think part of it people try and maybe disguise as some kind of weird you know juju feeling the earth or some kind of thing like that but i think it's it's probably subconsciously you've noticed something that makes you do something differently um and and i think i've gotten better at at listening to that and it feels more refined when i when i feel like i need to do something different i can lots of times now say okay well this is kind of the the thing leading up to that, that that's making me think I need to do something different. But, um, yeah, I, it, it's, it's something that I pay attention to a lot. And it's something that I, I actually hunt alone specifically for that, because I feel like when, when you're hunting with a, another person, oftentimes you'll, you'll have some weird feeling. You'll say, Hey, I think we should go do this. And then, then it instantly becomes a, a democratic decision where, you, you know, you have two people that have to vote on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's something that I, I don't want to lose. So, uh, in a lot of ways, I think hunting alone allows you to be, be more tied into those kind of decisions. Yeah. That's a solid point, man. So in this series, as we're talking about mule deer, you know, we're kind of trying to segment the, the hunt and different parts and pieces. And we've talked about preseason scouting. And in this episode, we kind of wanted to really narrow down on locating mule deer. And obviously there's a big crossover between those two. I mean, when you're, you're scouting for deer, you're trying to locate deer, but you know, we kind of want to move on from preseason scouting, talk more a little bit about actually locating deer, um, with boots on the ground we can hit on some preseason stuff, but kind of talk about, you know, during season and, and specific tactics for that. Um, but as I said, preseason scouting and locating deer, there's a lot of crossover. It's also, as we've, you know, reached out to our audience of, you know, what do you want to hear about in terms of how to hunt mule deer? 
it always comes back to just finding deer, right? And so there's going to be this crossover between scouting deer and locating deer. I'm just curious, as a, like a super broad question, what is the very first thing you look for in a new area when you're looking for deer? Deer. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I, and this is going to dip back into the scouting situation a little bit, but um, I, I scout differently different times of the year. Early, maybe late June, early July, I'm scouting country. But when I'm doing that, I'm looking for signs of deer, signs that there are deer there. Um, and then from that, you can break it down further to say, okay, well, this looks like a few deer live here. This looks like a lot of deer live here. Uh, you know, if there's, if there's any tracks, obviously looking at the size of the track, be like, Hey, big deer make big tracks. So, um, those are things I look for. And then from that, I break it down to, okay, this spot that has this many deer looks like this, you know, what are, what are the resources there that deer are going to use that I need to look out for when I'm looking at other parts of this mountain or other parts of this unit? Um, you know, try and more so pay attention to what the deer like than what I think they should like. Cause I think so often people get confused with, you know, we, we, we read David Long's book and we see all these high country Wyoming chain basins that are, that are wide open at the top. And, and we think that we're just going to find deer in that kind of stuff. Cause that's, that's what we see, you know, that's what's on Instagram. That's what somebody in some state that's not where you're at is posting pictures of. And, and we get this notion that we're looking for something that isn't where we're at. Um, and I, I think people really need to try and just pay more attention to what are the deer doing? And if you sit there and you watch any deer for some period of time and, and get some kind of semblance of, of what it is they like and how they use the area and then apply that to other deer, you, you can learn stuff from watching a group of does. You can learn stuff from watching a forked horn, um, but just more so pay attention to what the deer are doing and not what you think they should be doing. And then apply that to the other areas that you want to hunt. Um, the places I hunt don't necessarily have the most deer in them. I, I can go to a dozen different places where I could go and see more bucks, but I've used all those things I've learned in those areas from watching other deer. And I've, I've found places that have more mature deer. And then from that, I just kind of, um, I look at it through a lens that allows me to, to more quickly and easily find the mature deer in any area. And then in that area specifically, I'm, I'm pretty efficient at finding the bucks I want to find. Two themes kept coming up, uh, or questions from the audience in terms of locating deer related to number one density, which you just touched on. And then number two hunting pressure, like maybe just give us some of your thoughts or what you found about those two different ideas of, and let's say we are targeting more mature bucks. Are you looking for higher densities? Is that required? Or do you find that more mature bucks aren't in places where there's necessarily higher deer densities? And then we can talk about pressure after that, but let's head on maybe just densities first and kind of expand on your thoughts of, you know, high density deer areas uh, versus maybe call it quality deer areas. So I, I think it depends on where you're at in your situation. So if, if you're hunting somewhere totally new or scouting somewhere totally new, whatever it may be, and you don't have a good idea of like, this is the spot or the, these are the spots, you're obviously going to be looking for the most deer first. Um, you know, you want to, you want to refine your area. 
down to the you know most most huntable situation and until you know everything about that mountain or everything about that area you're you're pretty much flying blind so i would look for the most deer first and then kind of figure that situation out because not knowing the one individual pocket that's going to be the hardest place to find by its very nature i mean the, the mature deer have sought out those spots because they're they're the safest place for those deer um i i would go for the easy target first and kind of figure that out but but know that there's likely a better spot somewhere nearby that you need to get a better comprehension of that area and then apply the things you learn from the big groups of deer to try and find the place that's you know somewhere adjacent to that will hold the bigger deer this isn't a, a fair easy question, I'm sure, but like what type of distances do you think those little pockets tend to be? Is it just, you know, just across a ridge within a half a mile? Like when you talk about these pockets or other places to look at once you found density. Yeah. What have you found or noticed about those? D, all of the above. Um, it, it's really situationally dependent. Um, I, I don't think you can put an easy answer in, and it depends a lot on on topography, it depends, um, you know, what resources are in the area because they're obviously going to try and find the best resources that are in the, the most tight area that have the best cover and escape routes. Um, you know, so they're, they're looking for, for a certain set of things they need to survive. You know, they're, they're trying to build their home in the best place they can build their home. Um, and I, I don't think that that is necessarily going to have some set distance where they find those resources um, as it would relate to where the bulk of the deer hang out. And what about pressure, be it hunting pressure or just, you know, I even think of stories you've told me, Steve, about like areas where people hike or mountain bike right past great spots where, you know, that are holding a buck, for example. Um, what's been your experience with kind of that human pressure, human presence piece, Dione? Again, be it hunters or just other kind of recreational activities and how that might pressure deer affect that? So I think, I think there's a couple ways that it, that it can go. I think if you're in an area where um, human interaction is inevitable, if you're, you know, in, in a area like the Boise foothills, there's, there's big deer that live in the Boise foothills. Um, and then compare that to an area where you're in the middle of a wilderness area uh, where there's less human interaction, I, I think deer build up a tolerance to it, but they also, those deer that build up a tolerance to it will have a different game plan for how they, they act in that environment. So, you know, if, if you're hunting a deer in a wilderness area that gets bumped by a person, it's a much bigger deal probably than if you're hunting a deer that's, you know, two miles out of Boise who sees people on a bike path every day, but knows that if he lays down in the sagebrush, they're not going to see him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't think there's an easy answer for that, but I think, I think it depends whether or not the deer is habituated to people. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's, that is a great answer because it, it, like so many things, it's situational dependent. And what I love pulling the wisdom out of that, Dione, isn't that there's an answer, but it's us learning how to think about that situation and then apply it to a certain context. Mm-hmm. That's cool. When you talked earlier about you've gotten pretty efficient, um, that more questions came up kind of on that topic. Uh, We'll kick it off with this listener question. How many days do you think it takes in a new area to determine if there are quality animals there or not? Three days, three days for one mile of ridgeline. I've I've spent a lot of time thinking about this um, because it's, 
something that I do a lot. I, I love scouting. Scouting's like hands down my number one favorite thing to do. Um, and I've seen it enough times to where in the country I hunt where it's heavy cover, lots of escape routes, lots of hiding spots. Um, if I don't spend three days on the spot, I haven't done it justice. Uh, that could be different. Like if, if you're in those big Wyoming chain basins where, where it's really open and you can see every animal on the hillside with a, while they're, you know, bright red in the middle of summer, you might need to just spend one morning there to know every animal that lives in that basin. But for the type of stuff that I like to hunt, if I don't spend three days there, I'm missing deer. Um, now that said, I'm not spending three days where I haven't seen a single deer tracker or any sign of life. So I've, I've already gone through and done my homework and I've refined it down to this area holds deer. And I think there's big deer here. Um, you know, if, if I've, if I've hit that level of refinement and I'm, I'm suspicious that there's a big deer living in this basin, uh, that's when I'll spend those three days there. So, yeah. How are you getting to that level of refinement? So obviously you're not picking a new spot to scout. Uh, I mean, at some point you kind of got to cover country, right. And, and get in there and, um, you know, you just walk through stuff. What's like the, is just a, a feel you kind of get when you're looking at country, looking at the sign going, yeah, something lives, lives here. You know what I mean? Well, that's, um, it's, it's all, it all builds on itself. So the yeah. things I've learned by, by happening into the areas where there's lots of deer and seeing how those deer use that area and recognizing what resources those deer like, recognizing you know, when you look at a hill and you're watching deer on it for multiple days, you kind of figure out, okay, they like to walk through this kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. they've got this kind of an escape route. They've got this kind of plant that they're liking to eat. Uh, you, you build up this like portfolio of things to look for in that mountain range. And then as you're traveling country, which, uh, you know, typically this would be done the next season, but you could, you know, if you've got a week, you could string it all together and do it all, you know, right in a row. But as you're traveling through that country, you just need to be aware of, okay, well, that's that thing that those deer like to eat. Or, you know, this, this looks like a nice little place where there's this green spot in the middle of the hill where I can't see any water, but there's obviously a seep there. And there's a couple nice ridges that break up that hill. So it's going to be really hard to glass, but deer obviously are going to look for a place that's not the easiest to glass. Um, they're going to feel more secure there. So, okay, there's good cover. There's some good food. Um, you know, I might walk around that area or if, if it's not season yet, I might bomb right through the middle of that thing and just say, okay, well, doesn't look like any deer actually live here. It just looks like I think there should be deer living here. So I'll keep moving till I find a place that has all those things that I'm looking for. That looks like it has deer in it. There's deer sign. And then, uh, you know, come late July, early August, then I'll really start drilling into the list of places that I found that, that checks all those boxes for that big deer. We spending so much time, Dione and country and in scouting and even checking out new places. As you just said that, I'm just curious, do you have a system for all this? Like, do you, do you take notes? Do you use waypoints with certain indicators? Is it all in your head? Like, cause I know you cover a lot of country. Uh, and have covered a lot of country over the years. I'm just curious how you like synthesize all that information and not lose intel. So I used to take notes. Um, now I've kind of got it to the point where if, if I'm hunting in central Idaho, I know what I'm looking for. Um, so, you know, as I'm, as I'm out and about traveling, I'll just, if I see a spot that looks really good, I'll drop a pen on it. And at this point I've got 
way more places that have pins on it than I'll probably ever have time to go vet out, you know, especially taking three days a spot. Um, it, it takes a while to really vet out some of these, some of these hunting spots. But, um, you know, I've, I've just, I've got a base of knowledge now that, uh, that I, I guess I can just pull from. And as I see spots doing whatever it is, I may be doing, whether I'm not just hiking or, um, yeah, even just driving through an area, if I find something that looks really cool, uh, I'll just make a mental note and I'll, I'll drop a pin on my Onyx that I want to go back there and check it out. So whether it's scouting ahead of season or putting yourself in a position during a hunt, like walk us through, I mean, you even mentioned there you have these spots and now you need to get in there and check it out. Maybe you're doing that kind of three day Intel or again, maybe this is during a hunt, but like help us understand how to pick good vantage points. Like, so we know this ridge we want to cover with glass. How are you determining vantage points, positioning yourself, thinking through things like wind and sun direction, um, your exposure and getting to that point, you know, how you might access it, that type of deal. So the spots identified for the deer, and then how are you then positioning yourself around that to have a good vantage point, good access, not disturb the area, et cetera. So you, you kind of touched on it a little bit and it, it kind of hits on some of the points I'd, I'd mentioned earlier. I'm, I'm looking for areas that, that aren't specifically the easiest to glass. Um, obviously you want to find all those resources I talked about, but the places I've found the best bucks are, are not the easiest places to hunt. Um, so typically you're going to be compromised where you're able to glass. And I'm going to always set up to where the wind is at, at my favor. And if, if I'm able to, I'll set up to where the sun isn't going to impact my glassing. Um, you know, obviously I'm not going to be wanting to look east first thing in the morning because you'll get you'll get blinded um but more so it's it's what will the terrain allow me um if i can get across canyon and i can be a thousand yards away and i can look into the timber pocket uh or i can look into whatever broken topography i'm i'm thinking that there's going to be a big buck in that's that's my ideal situation uh oftentimes that's not possible so you might be setting up uh one or two finger ridges over glassing the couple open spots uh, that exist on that hillside that you would think a deer would come out on. Uh, it's, it's more what, what do you think you can get away with um, and just have to be very situationally aware. And then on like, say you were doing one of those three-day intels, I'm assuming you're probably changing positions to cover it from a different perspective or maybe to cover a new area entirely. Like how do you break up that time? So I, I killed a, a really nice buck in uh, – 2017 now i think it was um and I'd, I'd watched that deer for a month uh i glassed that deer every single time from the exact same point a few hundred yards away um there was there was no way i could i could move to any different location to watch that deer from and that's why i say it takes three days to catch that deer because i i wasn't willing to take the chance of bumping that deer to try and glass it from a different angle to see it that day um, and I, I was going in, uh, I had three day weekends at that point was, was where I worked and I was going in and spending every other weekend there for three days. And, um, I would just post up on that spot and wait for that deer to show himself. Um, I feel like your, your best chance at killing these big deer is letting them mess up. You can't, you can't just go in there and force the situation. 
I know this is high level. We've touched on some of it, but just a recap, because it's a question that came up over and over again. And again, I know this is going to vary on your, uh, as you've mentioned, the terrain you're in, the, the part of the country you're in, the state, all that. But like the key takeaways that you've learned that separate, quote unquote, big buck country versus just habitat that holds deer. Again, we touched on it, but just to kind of recap, because that was such an important question that kept coming up over and over again. So deer have to get old to get big. So if it looks like a great, easy place for you to hunt, you're probably not going to see old deer there because other people have thought it was a great place to hunt and they've probably killed the old deer. Um, You're looking for things that are advantageous for the deer, not for you. So if, if you go into it with the mindset of, oh man, this place has a great vantage point, and it has, it has all these things that I can see from Google Earth that other people would easily identify also, you're, you're probably starting at a disadvantage. If you go into it saying, okay, what looks like a great place for a deer to be hard to kill that has everything he could want to live in, that's probably where you're going to have a higher success rate on mature deer. What is so good. What are the things that you've had to overcome to hunt those hard-to-hunt places, if that makes sense? So the biggest thing for me and that the, it's a huge mistake I see a lot of people make who end up in great spots where they've seen a great deer or they know that mature deer live is that they don't have confidence in themselves and the fact that those deer actually live there. You know, if you see a big buck in a spot, that's probably where he lives. If he doesn't live there, he lives really darn close. So I've, I've done this long enough now to where I have confidence if I see a big deer I, I will bet on myself every time that I can find him again. Um, and, and I'm, I'm so confident in that, that I'm not willing to give up on it. You know, I like to always say, make a plan and work your plan just because something changes and you don't feel right about it. You still have a plan. Your best bet's to work your plan. Um, and I think people give up on spots too quickly. So, you know, they'll go in there, they'll spend a day or two looking for, for a big deer that they've seen. They won't see him and they say, oh, well, he's gone. Well, he's probably not gone. He's probably just a lot harder to find in that same spot. He's using that area. You know, he's, he's tightened up his routine and he's just going to be harder to find. What do you say would be a, uh, if you do see a big buck how and you see him in a spot, how big of an area are you glassing to try to relocate him? Are you, you know, if you don't see him for three days within half a mile or you, you branch out to a mile, two miles, I mean, obviously it's dictated by the country a lot, but. What do you think that kind of their home range would be, you know, in August, September? Most deer live inside of a mile and a half, mile. Mile, okay. Uh, mile to mile and a half, yeah. They, you know, and a lot of things can be deceptive, too. So I'm sure you guys have seen the little chart where they have, uh, you know, circles that, that overlap in the middle. And I like to think that, that big bucks will, will, you know, they'll they'll have – that little place in the middle where they overlap with other big deer. So you'll see a group of deer in the summer and they're all hanging out and they're all, you know, in whatever the best feed on that mountain is for, you know, some part of the day. And, and you see them and you think, Oh, that's a group of bucks that all live together and all use the same hillside the same way. And I, I think that's false. I think that's the same as you bumping into someone at a restaurant. You're, you're there for the same thing they're there for, but you're not necessarily with them. Like you're just, you just happen to be at the same place. So, you, you have to be able to identify that, okay, this deer was over there with those deer. And then you see that other buck 
using the hillside, you know, differently, or he's, he's maybe on some other part of the hill and you think, okay, well, this deer was with him yesterday. He should be with him today. No, maybe you just saw him in that one spot where they overlap, but his spot's actually, you know, to the left and that deer's to the right. I think that's pretty critical to being able to, to really target one buck. I mean, there's so much talk of like food, water, cover, that type of deal. If you were to like zero in on like, what is the core? Like if you talk about these overlapping circles, what is the core of that circle? What's the core of their home range? What's the place they spend the most time or feel most comfortable? Would you then tie that to cover? Yeah, they, they're good. I mean, it's, it's obviously best to find everything really tight together where they can, you know, not have to move a whole lot because mature deer have a pretty tight routine. They're not, they're not going to be just walking through the middle of big open basins just to walk through the middle of a big open basin. If, if they can have everything they need really close and feel really secure, not having to leave that, they, they won't leave it. Um, so I, I would say cover is probably more important, especially as you get later in the year. Um, early in the summer, they're, they're not as concerned with predators. They're, they're not as concerned with being seen. So you're going to find them more so on, on the food resource. But as it gets later in the year, the cover is more important. Yeah, that whole time of the year topic is, again, another major theme that kept coming up in questions. Um, When in the fall do you notice the most prevalent changes in either deer behavior, location, you know, habitat, all that? Like what is, walk us through the fall, I guess, for you and where you see the biggest changes. So everybody knows they're easier to find, you know, thick of the velvet preseason summer and then those habits will start to change obviously about when they start to shed velvet which is you know anywhere like september 1st to september 10th um from there they'll still be a little bit more visible until you get later into september and then by october they're they're fairly reclusive they're they're not moving as much their food demand isn't as much the temperature is really comfortable for them so they're not they're not having to get out and find shade. Um, they can they can lay around in one spot most of the day and be really comfortable. Um, and that just kind of keeps tightening up until you get into probably like October 25th. And then situationally, you might be looking at some deer starting to think about migrating. Uh, some deer might be starting to show a little bit of pre-rut behavior. Um, but they're not necessarily going to be floppy um, until you get later into November. But really the hardest time to find a mule deer is, you know, Idaho general season dates pretty much October 10th. They, they haven't got a whole lot going on that makes them have to move. So you're, you're looking for stationary deer. What is your preferred time of the year to hunt? I like, I like the October season. I think it's really fun. I love, you know, all the fall colors and uh, I love the challenge of finding the deer. And and for me at that point, I, I feel like, more often than not, I've, I've, if I don't have one buck picked out, I've seen the bucks in that area long enough to know kind of where I need to be looking and, and what I'm looking for. So it's, uh, it's really enjoyable for me to just try and find the deer. So I, I like that time of year. The weather's typically cooler. It's more comfortable to be outside. I, I don't do well with the heat, so it's a little harder in summer. The, the bugs have all kind of died off by October and, um, I think that's just a really enjoyable time to be out in the mountains. Do you find um, certain spots just seem to hold big deer year after year after year? Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I know of a handful of places where where you could go in there pretty much any year and find a mature deer. You know, that deer might not score. That deer might not have, you know, whatever characteristics somebody might be looking for, but he'll be a mature deer. And it, it typically, you know, the most um, reliable places I've found are places that have the best cover. Gotcha. I mean, it's, uh, you know, just super interesting to me. You talked about the, like the disadvantages of finding that time of year and then also said it's your favorite, <laughs> you know, it, and it's partially, uh, for you, it sounds like it is partially that, that challenge of like finding deer at that time when it is tough. And I know you mentioned the, the weather and the conditions and all that, but, um, yeah, it's cool that you just like the challenge of that time of year versus just saying, oh yeah, of course my favorite time is, you know, I have them patterned while they're unpatterned and just go after them opening day of archery season type deal. <laughs> I, uh, so a lot of the deer I, I hunt, I could, you know, in a number of the places I hunt have an archery season in September that I could hunt them in September. Um, but I've, I've given it a lot of thought and, and I really feel like my best opportunity is, is to kill them with, with a rifle. I'm not a sneaky person. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty fair at shooting a bow, but, uh, for me, it's not worth risking uh, bumping the deer and, and making them that much harder to find when I'm fairly confident I can find them again in October and kill them with a gun. So are you out during archery season, even if it's only for continued, call it scouting, or to keep tabs on that deer then, but not necessarily even with a bow in your hand? Yep, I will, I will go out and scout during archery season. I guess that's probably good, too, to get like a a gauge of how much pressure that area is getting and, you know, what type of pressure, you know, from what locations, maybe even an idea on how a deer might be pushed or moved through that time. Well, and you know, you have to look at what's your, what's your goal going into wherever you're going into. My, my goal is to kill the biggest deer I can find. So the more time I give myself to find the biggest deer, the better chance I'm going to have of killing the big one. Um, you know, oftentimes, you don't find the biggest deer till the middle of season. Even if you've been in that area, um, I, I, people look me up. The, the deer I have is my uh, profile picture on everything. Almost, he's a little over 31 inches wide, 183 inch deer, just a super, super beautiful buck. I had spent six weeks um, on that mountain within probably three miles of that deer. Uh, you know, I spent six weeks there and I'd never once seen that deer. Uh, and I killed him October 15th. So, you know, had I, had I gone in there and shot the best buck I'd found in September, I wouldn't have that really awesome deer. So what's, uh, of everything we discussed, and I know this is very open-ended, but just maybe some things that come to mind. If a guy is hunting specifically for archery season, like of the things we discussed, what changes, like what advice would you have for him, um, yeah, based on his strategy, just is that going after then the higher density areas and you know staying within the the core places where you're just going to have more shot opportunity? What comes to mind? Well, if if you're really 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 good at stalking in and killing mature deer, I I would do everything the same way I do it, except you probably need to be better at it. Um, you, you get very few opportunities at, at really really big deer and. And you're going to want to go in there with the best game plan possible. Um, you're going to want to go in there and know, you're going to want to know where you're going to want to make that stock at before the day you see that deer and, and try and plant a stock. 
um, if, if you've got that whole area mapped out and you know the prevailing winds and you know the areas that you could make your, your approach from, um, you're going in there assassinating that deer, not just, not just finding a deer and then trying to kill them. You're, you're going in there with, with a plan to kill that deer. Um, you really need to have your game dialed in to, to be that selective, um, I'm, I'm definitely not good enough to do it, but there's, there's a handful of guys who are, and, and you really have to have, have a polished plan on how you're going to, you're going to get in there and kill them. Even for you, like, let's say it's that October, uh, rifle season. Are you typically getting in position before opening day? Like how far early, you know, you're trying to get in there two days early and kind of get an updated feel for locating a deer or, you know, looking uh, for those specific locations. How does that look for you typically? That, that buck I'd, I'd alluded to earlier um, that I'd stalked, you know, I'd watched him for two months before season. Um, that deer I went in three days preseason. And my plan was if, cause I hadn't seen him for a couple weeks. We'd had a really big snowstorm in September and I couldn't get in there. And then when I did get in there, I only had a day and I didn't see him that day. But my plan was to go in three days before season and spend those three days in my one glassing spot that I could glass part of that hill. And if I didn't see him uh, those three days and then a couple more days into season, I was going to move one finger ridge each day further into his area. Um, and just, just a couple hundred yards at a time, one one finger ridge was, was my plan. I ended up finding him my first day back in there. So October um, 7th, I, I found him, uh, towards the end of the day. And then I watched him, um, you know, sun up to sundown. I watched him for three days and then opening morning, I killed him. I, I think I, I even had notes going. I would find him every morning between nine ten and nine thirty, within about a hundred yard circle on the hill and opening morning, I killed him at nine thirty, thirty 30 yards away from where I'd seen him the day before. Um, I, I already had, I already had the spot. I had a little flat bench picked out on the hill. I knew exactly where I was going to shoot from come opening morning. I just had to get in there get my gun set up, wait for him to expose himself. And, um, you know, at that, at that point the planning was over. I just had to get in there and, and do everything I told myself I was going to do. Would you say most bucks are that, um, they have that much of a habit, right? That they're in the same thing every day in day out, as long as pressure doesn't show up. Yeah. So here, here again, I think we've got to look at the two different kind of categories of mature deer. If, if you're in an area that's really remote and that deer has a really tight core area where he's really comfortable, he's got a lot of cover, nothing's in there pressuring him or bumping him. I think you can go in there and, and within a few hundred yards, know where you're going to kill your deer a lot. Um, I've, I've killed quite a few deer that um, I'd seen preseason, figured out where they were and, and knew pretty well what part of what hillside I was going to kill them on just because that was, that was the place I was going to wait until I had my situation that I was going to take him at. Um, and a lot of it too, you, you can't, you can't force some of these situations. So I would see the deer sometimes and say, okay, well, that's not where I'm going to try and make my play. I'm going to wait until he does this thing that I know he's probably going to do in my time frame I have to hunt and let him let him walk into my lap. That's a, that situation you just described on that deer and how you patterned them and you had your glassing point and uh, had the deer located within that core vicinity, at least during that time of day. How far away was your camp um, from that point? Cause that's a question that comes up a lot is 
yes, you pick a glassing point, but then, you know, safe distances to camp from on the mountain uh, and how that comes into play. Just curious what that looked like for you on that one particularly. So that deer was so, so tight with his program and he did not move very much. And there was a very strong prevailing wind that always went through this canyon. I, uh, my glassing point was maybe 200 yards away from where I camped and where I killed him was probably 500 or four or 500 yards away from where I camped. Uh, you know, situationally you've, you've got to just kind of pay attention to what, what you think you can get away from. If the wind ever blows from, from where you're at to where the deer are when you're sleeping, you know, they're going to know something's there. Even if, even if they don't leave the next day, you've probably just, you've given him that much of a heads up that something's not right. And he's going to be more inclined to maybe not act as naturally or, um, you know, do something that could give you a, a, a misrepresentation of, of what that deer normally does. So there's times where I'll camp a mile away um, or even a little bit more. But that place allowed me to camp really close. You know, locating deer is obviously uh, so dependent on glassing. I mean, it, it is what it is. Is just a lot of time behind the glass. As you mentioned, sometimes that's three days, maybe even from the same spot. What, like, to get into the nitty gritty, I guess let's first, let's just hit uh, actual gear. So, um, be it bino, spotter, tripod, et cetera. Like, what's your glassing setup specifically? So I've got some uh, Swarovski SLC uh, 10x42s or 44, whatever they are. Um, and then I've got a STM 80 with the what is it, 25 to 50 eyepiece. Um, and I'll, I'll do 95% of my glassing with the binoculars. The, the spotting scope's just there to, you know, weed out, is this buck the one I want or or not and i do a lot of a lot of filming through it also but um i i would say there's there's a lot of people who have like a glassing program i i sit down with my bind nose on a tripod as, as much as i can stand it um you know gives you a kink in the neck if you're doing it for too long so uh, i try and get as comfortable as i can and then i try and just glass as much as i can um it's it's more persistence than it is precision um I've, I find a lot of deer in the middle of the day when supposedly people don't find deer, but, um, you know, I, I just keep after it and it's not something that everybody's going to really enjoy doing because it is monotonous and it can get really, really boring sitting and staring at a hillside the whole day. But, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely a lot of persistence. As you start to pick apart that hillside, though, are you making a scan and then kind of coming back through deeper? Are you focusing on specific, like, say, fringes of cover? Does it depend on time of day? Um, I know you said it was persistence more than precision, but there's got to be some sort of at least a rhyme or reason to how you pick things apart. Yeah, so obviously I'm I'm going off of things I already know. I know the main areas that those deer like to travel. I know the main places that they like to to hang out and make a bed. I know where most of the beds are on the hill. Um, but even knowing all that, it's, it's really, really hard to see the deer oftentimes unless they get up and move or a lot of times they'll just stand up, stretch their legs and lay back down under the same tree in a more favorable position for shade. So, um, I'm, I'm scanning a lot, um, just trying to see where a deer might be standing up or where a deer might be moving. Cause, uh, realistically in heavy cover, that's, that's about the only way you find them. Sometimes you will just see that ear flick. Sometimes you'll make out a tine sticking out from behind a tree. 
but the overwhelming majority of the time, you're going to see something move. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a deer out where a minute ago there wasn't one. So you said, uh, you know, we've talked about the October season being your favorite time to hunt. Um, curious then for you, like what's your favorite rifle caliber uh, rifle setup? Like get a, the nitty gritty on the weapon choice. Okay. Um, so I've got an axial precision uh, custom rifle. It's a 6.5 PRC carbon barrel, carbon stock. I actually had them build it a little bit heavier. Um, I, I'm, I'm not, I like carrying a light rifle. I don't like shooting one. Um, I'd rather carry a little bit heavier gun that, that I'm more comfortable shooting. Um, I don't shoot extreme ranges at all, but I like to be able to, I like to have the option on the table if, if a need arises, um, to just, you know, be able to shoot five, six, seven hundred yards. Um, yeah, I'm shooting, currently shooting the 147 grain ELDM out of that setup, and I've been fairly happy with it. I haven't shot enough animals to, to say for sure one way or the other if it's if it's awesome, but um, I actually swapped scope again this year. Uh, I've got a Zeiss V4 on there now. I like that quite a bit. Cool. Where did you find that sweet spot to be for weight? Like, what's your, uh, what's your total weight on the rifle outfitted? Oh, gosh. So, with the bipod, it's nine point eight pounds i think okay and that's with a harris um segmented leg bipod so it's not it's not like the lightest one they have um yeah that's that's a really really comfortable weight for me i i had an incident where gun with a muzzle brake went off a few inches away from my ears so i'm I'm pretty timid about muzzle brakes i'd rather not run one um so yeah that's, that's kind of part of why i like the heavier setup and then it's a lot easier a lot easier to get stable on a heavy gun too so yeah i definitely noticed that i, I went through the built the ultralight rifle last year and, and then went back to the drawing board like how, how can i add weight to this thing because uh in the hunting scenarios it just it was hard to get stable yeah steve you got any other questions for dione i mean i could uh keep him on the phone all day but uh getting close to time just want to make sure there wasn't something you were wondering about here uh no i think i think we could, did a pretty good job covering it you know it's um yeah, I was super curious just on the where you're, you know, are you consistently finding big bucks in the same spot? Uh, how about, do you only one more, one thing that popped to my mind is if you do bump a deer, you talked about that one buck that you killed three quarters of a mile away. Um, what do you, what do you see as a kind of a consistent, you know, I think you often hear if you bump a big deer, he's gone out of that country and you'll, you'll never see him again. Um, in my experience, you know, they really don't move that far, but they, they may just change their pattern, um, behavior a little bit to where they're not coming out into openings. Uh, what have you seen there? So this is, this is one of those embarrassing full disclosure moments. Um, <laughs> that, the buck I talked about earlier isn't, isn't the first big deer that I've shot at and botched. <laughs> so or not, it's not the last one anyways, but, uh, that, I killed a pretty nice, uh, pretty nice velvet buck last year. And, um, yeah, so the, the day before I killed him, I, uh, I, I found him in, in a nice little spot where, you know, I was pretty confident that was where I was going to find that deer. And I set up on him, um, got ready to take the shot. And I actually had, uh, I had a Timney trigger fail. Um, the safety mechanism didn't fully unlock when I went to turn my rifle off safe. You know, and this is, I've got a whole routine I go through before I take a shot. So I set up my camera, 
I range them like 30 times. I check my chart, make sure everything's dialed right. Just trying to make sure I don't do any stupid little mistakes because, you know, the opportunities on these big deer are so few and far between. So I've gone through this whole thing. I go to shoot. Uh, safety stuck and I hear the firing pin drop gun doesn't go boom and this is when panic set in so I run the bolt on my gun trying to figure out what's going on deer gets up walks away and there's another little opening I'm pretty confident he's going to stop in so I move the camera I get everything resituated I range him same range everything's good well I forgot that there was oh what was it the, the the wind drift on, I don't remember what the wind speed was, but the wind drift was about 13 inches. So I forgot that part. And uh, and I got everything set up, and I'm back on the deer, and he stopped, and I've got a great shot on him. And I shoot, and I clipped his brisket. Like, just right right on the very front tip of this 186-inch deer, 30-inch wide, big, big mature buck. I hit him, totally non-fatal wound. Uh, um and that's when the panic set in and I got thinking, Oh crap, I just screwed this up. I'm not going to get another opportunity at this deer. Um, deer obviously ran off. I went, tracked it out, you know, little tiny bits of blood. He was jumping over three and a half foot high logs. Like they weren't even there. Um, you know, I, I knew the deer wasn't going to die from that. So I backed out, um, you know, kind of went through, okay, this is all the places I've seen this deer. I don't think he's leaving here. You know, this is his home. Um, he's not going to leave. He's just going to use it different. So I went through all the video I had of that deer and, uh, I said, okay, this is where I think he's going to show back up. The backside of that mountain was basically a cliff that deer can't traverse. So I knew he's only got these, these three sides of this hill. Um, uh, he's probably going to be in the thickest part of it. So that next day I set up, um, pretty much on the thickest part of it. And I caught him right at first light, like right, right, right at first light walking, um, you know, on the edge of a, a timber pocket into a really thick spot. So, um, I pretty much just sat him out and waited. I, I watched him walk through that and I got everything set up on where I thought he was going to come out to feed a little bit later in the day. And he barely poked himself out and, and I got him killed, um, you know, an hour, hour and a half into the morning. Um, but, yeah, he, he didn't leave. So yeah. I, I like to equate it to if, if something scary happened to you, are you going to go back to the place that's your home that you feel more secure than anywhere else? Or are you going to abandon everything you've ever done and start a new life? <laughs> yeah, most, most people aren't going to abandon everything they've ever done. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good analogy. <laughs> <laughs> Dearney, we hit, uh, as I said, we reached out to kind of get questions on this topic and we, we hit almost all of those. Uh, and thanks for the time. We had a few that were off topic slash sarcastic and from people you've hunted with. <laughs> so oh, one of those questions Anthony? was, uh, maybe <laughs> one of those questions I wanted to hear the answer to was, do you think lifted trucks make you a better hunter? <laughs> Oh man, I'm I'm gonna decline. I'm gonna decline to answer that one. I plead the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was looking forward so to that, for, man. For reference, for reference, when I killed when I killed that uh, 195 inch deer, I had a 1987 two wheel drive Toyota pickup. So if if that says anything, um, you definitely don't need a lifted truck to kill big deer, or a four wheeler, or 
yeah. or any of that other garbage that people try to tell you you need. <laughs> cool. There was a few more, but I have a feeling that they would uh, ruin what we typically like to keep as a fairly family-friendly podcast. So we'll save those for offline. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, Jody, before we do go, any uh, places you want to point folks if they want to kind of follow you, see your adventures, that type of deal, what would you have them check out? I'm I'm not the most active on social media, um, but I'm, I'm on Instagram. I'm, I think it's wild underscore Idaho. Uh, um, I'm on Rockslide a little bit also. Um, I think it's just the first part of my email, Stioni and whatever else. Um, that's that's kind of what I've got going on for social media. Well, there you have it, guys. Hopefully that was helpful for you as we continue this series. And thank you for taking the time to tune in and support the show. Again, you can reach us directly at any time via email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. If you haven't yet, hit that subscribe button, tell a buddy about a show, and leave us a review. We'd certainly appreciate that. We'll talk to you soon.